Hello all and welcome. Dave Fletcher here, lecturer in paramedic science at the University of Huddersfield. I'd like to welcome you all today to a new series of episodes aimed to increase discussion surrounding primary paramedic research which has influenced practice. Listeners will get a great introduction into the process of analysing research and learn more about relevant and current topics associated with pre-hospital care. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Warren Gillibrand, Director of Nursing and Midwifery Delivery in the School of Human and Health Sciences, and we will discuss palliative care in paramedic practice, a retrospective cohort study published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine. Hello everyone, uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, help review with this paper and uh, I'm delighted to be able to contribute. Uh, I'm currently the Director of Nursing Midwifery Delivery in the Department of Nursing Midwifery at the University of Huddersfield and I've been uh, a, a, an adult nurse and researcher in adult nursing for would you believe 30 plus years. Wow. And, and uh, in that time I've focused mainly on diabetes research having worked in various research and academic jobs. However, latterly, I've become a lot more interested in many different avenues of health-related research, mainly because I've been the research degrees tutor for our department and for the uh, Department of Allied Health um, Professionals uh, for the last 10 years. So I've supervised uh, quite a number of uh, students in the PhD and Master's by Research programmes in allied health and in nursing and midwifery. So I've got a wide experience of different methodologies and different subject matters. Just before we, we get into the, the detail of the paper, Warren, what is it that interested you? What is it that made you get into research kind of, well, okay. as, as a profession now? Sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, when I did my nurse training, yeah, it was a very much a hospital-based training. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't in university however we did have a module on research in that course and and that captured my interest and and so it, uh, soon after qualifying as a nurse I actually signed up to do uh, an anatomy and physiology degree uh, and then um, uh, took a job that was actually as a research nurse Where? in in a, in a large university hospital uh, and I was working actually for um, a university department of experimental ophthalmology, actually, of all things. Because, yeah. <laughs> and this is where my interest in diabetes came from, because it was a project looking at diabetic retinopathy. But it was very much a, a lab-based project. Um, so uh, most of those four years I spent trying to work out how to measure the uh, diameter of a capillary from a two-dimensional picture. So there you go. How interesting is that? <laughs> and the rest so, is history. Did you get? Yeah. Did you manage to do it? Did you get to it in the end? Yes. Oh, yeah. And then in the course of doing that, I did a master's degree and then a, a PhD. Um, and so that, that my interest in research was started from there and, and has never really stopped. And, and I think that's why I work in predominantly universities. I do still work in clinical practice when I can. Um, but predominantly work in universities because it allows me to pursue that research interest, um, you know, it, it, within the within the job. So that's 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 where I've come from. That's my interest. Yeah. Fantastic and and perfect to, to help us to discuss this paper today. So uh, so thank you so much for joining us. We we really appreciate yeah. it. So so everybody, the, the paper that we we've got today is uh, an exploration into palliative care uh, within paramedicine. Uh, in uh, Australia 
little is known, uh, according to the, the background of the paper, little is known about the paramedics' role in the care of these patients. And so um, they really do try to explore um, the types of patients that are attended to in the state of uh, Victoria and Australia by paramedics and, and then what our in, input is um, to help to, to manage those cases. I think that, that seems to be a, a reasonable overview. But, um, but what was your first thoughts about the paper, Warren, before we go into any of the kind of the deeper analysis or critical review? What was your overall picture my, of the paper? My overall picture was, was that it, it, it was a reasonably well-attempted study, yeah, and it, ha it, it had a reasonably uh, amount of uh, participants, and it was of interest, you know, um, because uh, clearly, from what I read of the paper, paramedics play a key role in uh, providing palliative care, yeah, at point of contact, and um, it, it the overall impression of the paper from reading the background and the results in the discussion um, is that this is probably uh, quite an integral part of what paramedics would do on a fairly day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so therefore, it, it, it is of interest. And um, I think that was that's where my interest was garnered in the paper, in that what, what does this mean for practice? Yeah. Mm. And, you know, you know, I've got some ideas and I've got some review of the actual methods and the actual results. However, uh, overall, I thought it was probably a, a, an interesting and worthy paper of paramedics to read. Yeah, that's and that's that's the most important thing for me is that is that when you first start uh, you know, searching and reading for research, you will find an awful lot of papers that probably aren't worthy of reading. Yeah? <laughs> and that, that's a real skill that I've managed to learn over 30 years is the, the key skill of determining because all our time is very precious. Yeah. Mm. So it's really about can I get from the title and abstract that this is a paper that I actually want to read? Yeah. And, and one of the things I've learned is, is almost a, a, a ruthless application of, well, I, I don't think this is worthy of my reading, therefore I'm not going to read it. I've read the abstract and that's enough for me. So I I mean, I'm not a paramedic, but however, I am a nurse. And so I thought, yeah, this is a paper worthy of reading. And I think that's the first thing that you, you want to sort of get into is that, well, actually, yeah, you can just read the title and abstract. Yeah. And then you can decide, yeah, is it something that is worthy of reading? And, and then in a wider context, is it something worthy of including in a review in the future in this area? So, I, I mean, my first two check questions were, yes, it's worthy of reading. And yes, it is research. I think that's the other thing, you know, determining that, that, that it's actually, you know, research methods that have been used and it's a research report. I think that those are such such valid points and and certainly one of the challenges that I find within pre-hospital care because we are a, you know, a junior profession, we are developing, there's not a lot of very good uh, research that's out there for our field at the moment and so I quite like that approach being ruthless when reading the abstract is so very important because you can read quite a lot and then you, halfway through it you're thinking to yourself gosh I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure whether I should have started with this so um, yeah so, and, then, and then the other thing is that I, I even though 30 years of reading research papers yeah and, and writing a few um, the other thing is I, I and I always say this to all my students is that I always come across terminology yeah, uh, and subject matter that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So uh, seeking clarification, yeah, 
exploring what terminology means is a real part of the toolkit when you come to reading research. So, um, you know, uh, as I said, this is not my area of practice. However, you know, it, it is part of uh, overall healthcare practice. But there are terms, you know, within the paper, which I was not that familiar with. So, um, you know, therefore, it initiates in my inquiring that I want to explore those concepts further. So I think that's another key thing as well. Right at the sort of initial reading stages, I always make notes of keywords or phrases that, that maybe first at first glance or first reading, I don't really understand. Yeah. And I'm happy to admit that after 30 years of reading research, that there's always something that I come across uh, in papers that I read that I'm not fully understanding. So therefore, um, I will then um, make a note of that and think, right, I'll, I'll, I'll explore that a bit further. I'll give you an example in the, in the abstract. Yeah. Uh, and it's in the conclusion of this paper, and it says these results should inform the design of integrated systems of care. Now, integrated systems of care, yeah, is something in the United Kingdom, yeah, that we're not actually that very good at defining or actually uh, instigating. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with this. So that's something that I noted down. I thought, oh, I'm not sure what 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 in this in this context, because I think this, uh, you know, this is uh, in in Australia exactly what that means so I might want to explore that further so even at the start of reading the abstract I'm already starting to make notes to sort of think yeah I want to seek clarification I think that's so reassuring Warren because certainly with with a couple of, of groups and, and uh, that I'm teaching at the moment but also because of my own journey it really does put you off it fills you with fear and dread if you get all of these yeah. terms that that you're like oh, I don't I, I don't have a clue what that means yeah and that also relates to terms such as buzzwords and I and I really do treat integrated systems of care as that buzzword because it's used everywhere and it can mean a million and one different things mm. as well but mm. I think that's a, a such a valuable piece of advice uh, annotate annotate your paper if there's something that you don't know what it means have a look into it don't be apprehensive don't be put off by it it's something we're all lifelong learners right that's part of the reason why we love our job so have a look into it and use that to help you to navigate that paper I think a cracking piece of advice absolutely yeah and you know um I, so I then would you know read the paper and we'll come on later on about um what I would call informal versus formal uh, uh, appraisal or uh, assessment of the study of the paper's merits yeah um but what I would you know my initial uh, view is that of course this paper is published in a credible journal it's been peer reviewed yeah uh, and so uh, there's been a process already uh, before you read it of uh, review and and probably um uh, revision so so that's always to bear in mind and and i always uh, always make the statement as well that um there was a there was a some time ago now uh, there's a journal called the british medical journal which is very well regarded and uh, is is worldwide distributed it's got a very high impact factor publishes a lot of studies in primary care and um the statistician uh, chief statistician is responsible for the statistical review of that journal uh, decided to perform uh, a random assessment of the statistical methods and results uh, in 100 papers in one year from that journal and she found in the statistical uh, uh, analyses 90% uh, of the papers had errors 
So, and all right, that's some time ago. And that's at the point at which they've already gone through review and revision. So I think for me, when I first start reading a paper, I've got my, what I would call uh, informal or um, uh, knowledgeable head on in, in looking at a paper. And I, I'm always approaching review of a paper uh, with my, what I would call healthy sense of cynicism. So that that's not to be to say to disregard it. It's to say that, you know, to view the, reading the paper uh, with uh, almost an automatic sense of that there's we need to be critical. Yeah, we need to be what what's called critical in our reading of a paper. Yeah, and this develops over time, and it it's helped by educational methods, which which we'll get onto a bit later about formal reviews. Um, but in the initial reading of a paper, I always think that using my healthy sense of cynicism, my critical lens yeah, on a paper really helps me to to formulate uh, opinions and uh, objective opinions about uh, what the quality and the import of the paper is. And so I so in my initial read. Yeah. And so we'll get on to a little bit later about what we mean by formal appraisal. Can I can I just yeah. step in yeah. there because I think it's a, a really mm. interesting point. I mean, one, I'm absolutely astounded, and, and that's something that I didn't know from from the B, BMJ's yeah, yeah. statistician. Ninety percent statistical error. Yeah. I mean, yeah. where that is phenomenal, and and you know, a lot of the feedback that that I certainly received from students who were embarking on you know a first couple of modules of research is, well, surely it, everything would be perfect. That's why it's got to this stage, yeah. and it's a bit like, well, no, there's always a way to improve it. The way that I look at, at research. Um, with that healthy cynicism is I'm a huge fan of quality of continuous quality improvement there's always ways we can improve things and, it, and it's something that um, sits within us you know when I'm a paramedic there's always things I think to myself why couldn't we just do this or why couldn't we just do that I'm not sure whether it was the same for you in nursing um, but it's that drive to always deliver the best thing for our patients that helps me look at papers in this way to think to myself okay maybe they haven't considered doing it this way or the other way and that constructive criticism helps us to keep on improving things um, and that's why we should always challenge each other in a in a very healthy professional constructive way to say have you considered this or have you considered that would you agree uh, yeah absolutely yeah i mean that's that's the whole point yeah that we're always driving and inquiring yeah and investigating to that end point of or and it's never really an end point of trying to improve our practice yeah and answer the clinical questions and you know i think this 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 study was born out of that you can see that from the aims and the 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 discussion about uh, where practice is yeah that um you know there, there's clearly uh, some um inquiring and investigating that this group wanted to do yeah in order to determine uh, either further research or what what do we need to take forward to our our education of paramedics but also our practice yeah so i think that was born out of it i think when i got into the methods i was uh my healthy sensitivism probably came more to the fore yeah and that's not to say that this was uh, done uh incorrect or anything like that it's just that Maybe, and this is always the case with a retrospective cohort study. So, first of all, those terms, you know, we need to be familiar with. Yeah. Uh, so, what does that mean? Well, it means we're looking back at data that's previously been collected. Yeah. In a group of adult patients. Yeah. That have been attended by paramedics. 
and and it's a particular group uh, against an inclusion excla- exclusion criteria that were included in the sample for analysis. So, but we've always got to be um, uh, cautious in how we use retrospective cohort data. Uh, because of the very nature of the fact it's previously collected data. It's not prospectively, it's not purposefully selected, it's not been designed, the research, to actually gain answers prospectively. This is research that's been designed to actually analyse data that's been previously been collected. And that is a real difference in terms of what we call uh, investigation or exploratory research as opposed to evaluation and this very much falls into evaluation so we've all always got to be able to think about that in terms of where does this sit for example in whatever hierarchy or um, structures of evidence we might have against our practice uh, where where would this possibly sit and it's it's prop because it's not prospective it's not purposely designed to collect the data it that in 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 a forward way then the, the design is always going to be against well what actual data have we got and that's the key thing with this yeah does it, does that mean at times that that with this approach you could effectively get a bit of a square peg or a round peg to fit a square hole because the data wasn't always collected for that purpose i mean you know we try to make it as accurate as possible and to fulfill the brief the objective that we're trying to deliver but sometimes you can't always because it's not captured at the time for that specific purpose it can sometimes square away from that does that yeah yeah absolutely and and you know i i'm i'm convinced yeah from my exploration that there are probably many other outcome measures, yeah, to uh, providing end of life care um, at the point of contact with paramedics, yeah, uh, other than the ones that they've focused on. And they focus on those because that's the data that was collected, yeah. So that's the key difference, yeah, as opposed to, well, what data could we collect? And that, and that, that's where uh, we've always got to be cautious about retrospective cohort studies in that whilst we I agree that you know wholeheartedly that pain yeah um and uh, some of the other outcome measures um are extremely important yeah uh, respiratory problems yeah and of course uh, uh, being deceased they there are probably other factors as well that are important to the person in and the families and the carers in that end of life care situation but probably yeah was not you know part of the measures that are routinely collected in terms of data so i think that's you know that's an overall caution about retrospective cohort studies there are other cautions yeah uh, in my reading of this in in what we take from this in that um a, a retrospective cohort study that doesn't use a, a, a random sampling method in within the population, yeah, is always going to be what we call a sample of convenience, yeah. And it, when you read your texts uh, uh, around methods, you'll always find re- reference to the fact that convenience sampling, yeah, is is probably more subject to what we call confounding variables and in, and in, in extreme cases bias. Yeah. So that's another kind of thing that I picked up on in my overall um, uh, sort of look at the paper and my initial read. Though there were one or two other things that they indicated in methods that they were going to do some 
manipulation of data as opposed to describing the data. However, in the results, uh, we just got a description of the data. There was no manipulation. So what I'm referring to there is a statistical test to compare, uh, and that's called, um, they refer to it as X squared, but it means chi-squared test. What that means is is comparing uh, two variables against each other, yeah, usually on the level of proportion for a chi-squared quest. Now, we, we do see proportions, yeah, um, you know, we've got percentages in there. However, we've, there's no comparison a, across the groups or anything like that. So um, there's just some things I picked up on. I did pick up on the fact that, it was a, it, you know, whilst it's a reasonable sample size, yeah, um, you know, we, we don't really get any information about whether that's what we might term representative. And so what representative means is, can we apply that to the wider population, the results of this? And, and in classical research terms, that's called external validity. Now, uh, I couldn't see in this paper that there was any um, uh, re reference to that or whether we could actually, you know, take this to a wider population that, that was studied. So that, that's the, that's the, my overall sort of, but on the other hand, I did find it interesting and there were some very interesting results, um, you know, and interesting, I find it very interesting that, you know, one of the, mo the you know, the, the most common um, uh, assessment of primary health problems by the paramedics was respiratory and pain. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, gave me some knowledge about um, what you're doing as paramedics when you're providing end-of-life care uh, attending the, these patients. So that, that was, to me, was very interesting. One of the questions that, that I often get from, from students when they're conducting critical reviews, whether that would be for their own um, personal benefit or whether it's from an academic piece of work, is um, there's obviously because this paper has been published in a journal, there will be author restrictions, won't the word count being a significant yeah. one of them. Um, nevertheless, that shouldn't necessarily get in the way of answering some of these questions, should it? So, you know, suggesting that you're going to follow a process and then not being able to explain or describe if that process has been followed and why, it is an absolutely, it's a significant finding that should still be in there, even with those restrictions. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there's always, a. I mean, word restrictions to, to journal articles are always very restrictive. So you do get that, you know, sense of sometimes that there may be results not being presented because they just haven't got the room. However, um, you know, some journals, I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether this is one of those, uh, might have an online uh, uh, publication presence. And sometimes in those, you can get uh, links to further data and further results. So um, some of the bigger journals now are, are also providing links to actually all the data, anonymized, obviously. And some are providing links to further uh, analysis or further tables of results that weren't included in that paper. So you can uh, sometimes get to further uh, information and data on a paper. And of course, um, you can also, because um, th this is something that I often find that people miss, yeah, in a journal, yeah, uh, and it's something that maybe we don't do as much as, as say, maybe compared to medicine, yeah, but usually in an article publication right at the top somewhere, yeah, there will be, yeah, a, a corresponding author, mm -hmm. yeah, and and here we are, Corresponding author, Bill Lloyd, School of Nursing, University of the Sunshine Coast. Sounds nice. Uh, in <laughs> Australia. Yeah. 
and, and an email address. Okay. And that is for correspondence. Yeah. So that, that means, yeah, you can contact Bill. Yeah. Uh, and um, by that email address and say, oh, I read your paper of interest. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned about chi-square test and comparison across groups. Did that? Is that something that you did? And um, is it something that you intend to publish in the future? You know, so and and I say my experience of corresponding with authors has always generally been very positive. Yeah. In fact, you know, they reply and usually uh, quite happy to engage into a uh, uh, a discussion, you know, albeit by email, yeah, these days, um, about the paper. So, you know, and, and in fact, sometimes you'll find, I mentioned before about the British Medical Journal, they have sometimes uh, re responses to papers published in the journal. So um, so that's by people who've read it and, and sometimes raising questions. So I often think that it's something that we miss, yeah, on that first page of a paper where it says corresponding author. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's certainly something that we are absolutely missing within paramedic practice. There isn't enough responses to the papers. Um, just in the recent round uh, of students that, that I'm working with at the moment, I think there's about five that have that have used that corresponding email address. And every single one of them has received a response, which for yeah. me is absolutely fantastic. But that's exactly what it's there for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And as I say, as an author myself, you know, um, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always delighted, actually, when someone contacts me and says, oh, I'd really like to ask you some more questions about your paper. Um, you know, it doesn't happen enough because that is what we call the critical debate, which is how we progress our professions. Yeah. You know, without that critical debate about uh, the research that drives us or the evidence or not. Yeah. Then that that is I mean, you know, the uh, the, the definition almost of a professional is that the ability to question practice. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think we need to do more of that. And, and part of you uh, doing a course like you're doing is to engender that um critical debate in uh, constantly in our practice throughout our professional working i'm conscious that maybe we, we might want to talk uh, uh, <laughs> a little bit more about say formal appraisal yeah absolutely um, yeah okay so um you and, and no doubt in your course you've already come across sort of um, some ideas about uh, and some direction about what we can term formal appraisal and appraisal frameworks now well, I must first of all, I mean, and sometimes you might find in modules, uh, particularly to do with research, that the uh, assessment of your knowledge is formulated around the ability to do that. What I, what I would say is that we, we've got to be clear about the, the conceptual level of these things in our heads. Yeah. So um, one of the most common uh, set of frameworks of which there's one for cohort study is something called the critical appraisal skills program now if you read the front page of that website you will see that this the the authors of that uh state very clear that this is an educational tool yeah so the 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 origin the origins behind casp were that it was it was designed to enable practitioners to become critical analysts yeah of research it wasn't particularly uh, designed those frameworks to actually perform appraisal however uh, in the background to that uh, we had moves within uh, the nhs particularly around structuring our practice on in terms of uh, evidence-based practice 
and we came up with lots of definitions about what that means. And in doing so, yeah, uh, the the overriding uh, pinnacle to evidence-based practice was determined by medicine. It doesn't always apply in, in all professions in something called a systematic review. And, and that was very much uh, about combining the results of randomized controlled trials mathematically to come up with an overall result. Yeah, and the most common um, uh, systematic review in existence is the use of enteric coated aspirin to reduce the incidence of cerebrovascular accidents. And that has been trialed many times and been subject to a number of systematic reviews. And the people who perform those systematic reviews um, utilize appraisal frameworks to assess uh, the quality of the research published. So that's very much about using it in a formal method to perform a systematic review. Sometimes we see uh, literature reviews structured around using appraisal frameworks. So it, it as a but not using a mathematical approach to combine results of trials. Mm. So we get what we call um, um, approaches or uh, modifications of of its use. But I, I wouldn't. I, I always come back to the fact that that CASP and, and other ones as well, there's other ones, and particularly in Australia, there's a whole set of frameworks from the Joanna Briggs Institute. Um, and so they, they are actually designed to help us as practitioners develop our critical and analytical skills when we're reading research. That's the principle behind them. Although they are used in systematic reviews and you'll see them used in published papers, as I say, the principle behind them is to develop our skills um, educationally. So um, that that so whilst I you know you can apply um, and there is a CAS tool for cohort studies and there's also a Joanna Briggs tool for cohort studies. Um, that really helps you learn about what are the major parts of a paper that we need to focus on. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not always the idea that then we present a formal structured appraisal of the paper answering the appraisal questions now that might be the case in terms of if you've got assessment focused on that or if you want to do it for a specific reason because that's the method of your review but more for me it's about developing our knowledge yeah and developing our uh, expertise in in how we read and appraise research um and and i've already picked up on some of the factors yeah in this paper which you know i've automatically brought forward from those appraisal questions yeah like the sample like the area of interest yeah like the outcome measures and the confounding variables yeah um, and it's also something as well of course there's something called level of exposure so so um that's the um in your in our sample yeah um how much uh, of the factors that we're hoping to measure actually appeared in the results so uh, i'll give you an example yeah um in in table two yeah now we know that the overall sample in this study uh, was over 4000 yeah? yeah um but i give you i give you an example of that yeah the the, the major uh, um 
assessment um, of, of need by the paramedics in table two was the respiratory problem. Yeah. And you'll notice that there was 845 and 20%. Yeah. So, um, so it's about the level. So there's a 20% level exposure. Yeah. So that, that's, it means that, you know, we're, um, there's eight. There's you know, whilst the percentages are over overall added up to 100 in these, yeah. The rest, the rest of them, apart from pain, are, are very small, yeah. You know, compared to the overall size of the problem about paramedics dealing with patients in end of life care at point of contact. So, um, that's what we mean about whether this is um, a, a, a truly valid and representational a cohort study yeah um that we could generalize some population you know and, and based on that which is taken from a, the appraisal framework my answer would be well no and and the authors recognize that and they've said that we need to do further research yeah because um uh you know there's a number of variables there that we can't determine that there's been enough to make a recommendation about what we do yeah even for the respiratory problems yeah. So you would recommend of being able to have a greater control over those variables before it would be providing statistical significance to be able to base a, a recommendation. Yeah, and this this comes down to the crux about this fact this was a retrospective cohort study and not a prospective one. Yeah. Because if we'd set set out to do a prospective study, yeah, and maybe use random sampling, and when we determine the outcome measures that we wanted to to uh, based on this you know on our knowledge and what's recorded yeah but uh, then we can then perform yeah what's called a, a sample size calculation about what sort of numbers we would need yeah uh to to gain this the 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 right level of uh responses yeah or exposure so that we can make the the, the true recommendations yeah and you know i think we saw some numbers around the fact that um Using the inclusion exclusion criteria, yeah, the caseload in this time period, so the ones that were uh, sort of met the inclusion exclusion criteria, so they were to determined to be in that end of life care, uh, was 0.5% of the caseload during that study period, yeah, yeah. and that that might be that might be right, yeah. So you know, in other words, but we don't get too much information about whether that's right against the you know the wider population yeah um so assuming that's correct and you know we have to make that assumption then um uh if it's if what's the other nine, 95% of the case or during that study period yeah uh, against that so and and you know that it seems like 4348 is a is a is a good enough and big enough number but in the wider context about what paramedics do yeah in australia then um and you know there's 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 commonalities in there between australia and the uk here absolutely that, that um whether we could absolutely say with confidence from this paper that yes this would be the case yeah so um and I'd, and they don't make that case yeah you know, they, they say, well, we probably need, yeah, this is the first large study. Yeah, great. But, you know, as it was a retrospective study of patient care records, yeah, we, we're caveating what we're taking from this paper. Yeah, and they acknowledge that it's a small, what is actually a small sample. 
So at first, you know, you sort of think, great, 4,300 and over. Good number. But even the authors acknowledge that in the wider context, yeah, um, and when you think about it, that's 0.5% of the caseload in um, uh, Victoria, yeah, or New South Wales, wasn't it? Um, you know, then then suddenly it's it's not that big a number, yeah. And and in the wider context of Australia paramedic practice, because I'm going to make some again, I got this from the background. There are national policies that guide what what paramedics do in Australia. Then uh, we're not going to be um, uh, making recommendations for that policy change. However, what he did tell me was that you know uh, we we need to know about this as paramedics. Yeah, you know, and and we probably need to do more research, which is what they finish off with. Absolutely. Um, And I think the thing for me, because I thought something similar when I looked at that number and perhaps uh, and this is where I I would and I went to do some further digging is that number doesn't it seems to be quite low, that 0.05 percent. When I think Mm. about, you know, my own practice and how many patients would have ticked that box, it feels a bit low. And and what I've sent and what I've seen with a few paramedic specific research studies recently is they tell us a lot about what they're focusing on, but not necessarily about everything else that allows you to cross reference those numbers. But that then validates your point about going online to see what data is available for you to enable you to make those those checks yourself, which is vitally important, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, and as I said, there's other other nuances in the paper which think you can sometimes you pick up by thinking about or using appraisal questions, yeah. Um, you know, that help you inform your appraisal, yeah. Uh, so I think you know, uh, it, they, they are very useful tools, yeah, but they are part of the toolkit, yeah. And and so, and I, I'm I always say that our experience and our knowledge is just as useful, yeah. Uh, in in these cases, as in, you know, when we're reading research, so um, you know, don't don't uh, negate that as well. You know that your experiences and your knowledge and your wider exploration of literature will, will really help you inform what you take from this paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah, c- absolutely, complete, completely agree. C- question four of the CASP framework, Warren. It says, "Was the outcome accurately measured to minimise bias?" And you used a fantastic phrase before, a confounding factor. Uh, yeah. There are a couple of confounding factors, um, and one of the hints on the CASP framework on that question is, were the subjects and/or the outcome assessor blinded to the exposure? And in this instance, they certainly weren't blinded. They knew what they were looking at, and, and like you said, they've manipulated some of the data going in in the yeah. first instance instance yeah um, yeah, no, and, and uh, yeah so I say so those questions in the cast can really help you determine that you know um and uh because you know, as I say I'm I'm not a paramedic but I could recognize you know there, there must be much more confounding variables to to the, to the actual data measurement yeah um I mean what are respiratory problems What's the definition of a respiratory problem? Absolutely. I, I could probably think of about 30. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. off the top of my head. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so, again, you know, I think there there are many other variables within this that uh, probably, yeah, uh, they couldn't determine or couldn't delineate for or account for because they weren't measured. And that's always the problem with a retrospective cohort study. Yeah. You're using the data that's been collected. Yeah. 
one of the questions I'm commonly asked by um, by students, because uh, and, and it's on the back of that phrase that you've said there, often this is one of the issues, the prevailing issues with retrospective cohort studies. Where where are students best to look for for that type of for that type of reference, that key reference of and, and retrospective cohort studies often can have errors in these areas. I mean, we've got some fantastic reading lists available, and uh, that's kind of where I'm sending students to. But do you have any yeah. do you have any specifically yourself that you you use quite a lot? Um, well, other than I, I mean, Joanna Briggs Institute is pretty good. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not quite structured the same as the CASP. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's it's worth exploring because there's a lot of information about methodology in there. Yeah, so um, and the thing is, um, I, I also like um, the works by Muir Gray in evidence-based practice. Yeah, um, you know, he 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 he's written a number of books, um, and they're very straightforward. And they 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 what I like to say is they tell it like it is. Yeah, <laughs> so so. Um, uh, you know, and I think sometimes there's also, um, uh, again, it's also about not overwhelming with large, when you're confronted with a large research methods textbook, your heart sinks. Yeah, because, <laughs> because yeah. you know, you sort of think, oh, Grimes, have I got to read all of that? Yeah. But there is a really good uh, little book uh, called uh, Crombie's Pocket Guide to Critical Appraisal. And uh, in there, it discusses methods. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really is a pocketbook, yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, it's cheap to buy, and it's also very easy to carry, and it and it's easy to read. So I, I'm all for, you know, uh, research methodology textbooks, but I'm also all for the fact that we need things that we can use and we can understand, and we don't have to trawl through reams and reams of of text which is justifying why they've come to a certain conclusion. So. I, well, some of that is important, yeah. Uh, I find the the straightforward, straight talking books like from Muir Gray, from Crombie, uh, really helps me, especially working in evident what we in the context of evidence based practice. But I'm also conscious as well that uh, you know the old maxim is always it stays true as well. You know that that um, you know you've always got to keep up with new editions of books because knowledge changes. Yeah. 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 You know, knowledge changes against context. And that's why I particularly like Casp and Joanna Briggs and because they they update, you know, against context. So, you know, they, they add new factors to the uh, appraisal questions uh, in an ongoing way. Yeah. So, you know, so I you know, and I think that that to me is is where, you know, the difference between a static uh, book. But keeping up to date with the more the most latest edition but also uh you know using the credible websites that we have i mean uh, interestingly as well we often go to cochrane's database of systematic reviews yeah because we're looking for a systematic review in something but actually on there there's many different sorts of reviews. There's reviews of trials, yeah. There's, there's there's trials published as well, and there is actually very useful information in there about how the um, those reviews have been performed and what methodology has been examined, yeah. So that, you know, there, there's also lots of useful information 
in sites like that that often we miss, you know, because we go straight to the results or whatever the review is. And we don't often read the front end to that, which is actually the methods of the review, which includes all the detail about what the methodology nuances were and what particularly about the methods that they were looking at. So, you know, you can often get a lot of very up-to-date contextual information from the front end of those pages, when, which we often skip over because we just want to see the results of the systematic review. Absolutely something that I uh, have reflected and it's an area that I need to improve on. You, you're so kind of keen to get to the crux of the matter. You can miss so much value elsewhere, yeah. but some absolute gems there for students to be able to get some really valuable resources from. Warren, I can't believe how quick these 48 minutes have gone so far. Um, so yeah. I've got two questions and I think that's yeah. probably going to take us up to our time frame. So the first question for me is if you were looking at this area um, and, and if I had to say, OK, so we, we have to do a retrospective cohort study using this data. We can't change that approach. What type of things would you do different to increase the validity of this paper? OK, so I think, first of all, um, uh, the it needs to probably a more thorough investigation of what data is collected. Yeah. OK. We need more uh, and probably more accurate uh, figures of caseload. Yeah. Um, and that's taken not just from one particular area, yeah? So there the, the probably will be figures on caseload across Australia, which gives us then uh, a more accurate picture of, well, what sort of sample size would we be aiming for, yeah? Because um, geographical boundaries are often used because of convenience sampling. Yes. That's the access we've got to data. However, that is not a research principle. Yeah? People don't that work a, like that, do we? No. People don't work by geographical boundaries. But, but that's a, often, as I say, a convenient way of, of, of doing research. Yeah. Whereas actually the principle should lie in that, well, if this problem exists across Australia and we can't achieve um, a sample size within New South Wales to actually get external validity, then what else do we need to do? Yeah. Is, so is that is that widening this out now? Or there's always constraints to that in terms of resources and time, etc. But I, I always think that it, even if you can't do it in this initial research, you should at least acknowledge that there is a much wider population that requires study to truly determine, yeah, that this is representative. And so that that for me is the main thing. The, I mean, the other thing is, and is, and again, it's based on my reading of this rather than my knowledge is. Are all are all those variables that are collected routinely? Uh, is that it? <laughs> is my question? Yeah, you know, I, I I can't believe that 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 is all that is recorded. Yeah, I I, I would propose with with my limited knowledge is that um that there is a lot there in that that can easily be abstracted from a checkbox perspective but not as a free text perspective. Yeah. And then if it's of a free text perspective, that takes a lot of resource, doesn't it, to be able to abstract yeah. it out. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but as I say, and that might be an, uh, you know, a more in-depth study within that sample. But, uh, you know, because I think there's much more to end of life care yeah, than what's presented in this paper. Yeah. Absolutely. And certainly in my experience of end of life care, making sure that the patient is is comfortable and, you know, fulfilling the needs of that patient, arguably the most important thing yeah. to deliver clinical quality none of which perhaps have been discussed yeah. in anywhere near enough depth in this paper. Well, and, uh, I, and I think as well, you know, that 
there was certainly an issue in, that's direct. You know, we we can probably think about in our practice in that um, uh, not knowing whether patients should be resuscitated or not. That seemed to be. I mean, that that has been a a long-standing issue in hospitals. Yeah, um, and and it must be even more difficult when you're attending outside of that and you're attending someone's home or a care setting to determine very quickly yeah whether that is the case or not and and that that struck me out of this paper quite a lot that uh, there seemed to be an issue there that probably needs further investigation uh, or or in fact that might be a practice recommendation you know because it to me it it was quite serious you know a a absolutely um and again, that's something that I've worked on previously as well. There isn't a, a, a robust way that I'm aware of anywhere internationally that, that provides that um, information about whether you should start or whether you should yeah. uh, not start uh, basic or advanced life support. Uh, and yet, interestingly, not discussed in this paper in any way, shape or form, which is a fundamental part of paramedic practice. Um, you're absolutely correct. Mm. Um, Okay, so the last question from me, Warren, and uh, I can't believe how quickly this time has gone. What What are the top tips that you would give to students embarking in a career within uh, paramedic practice or healthcare wider um, to to approach research and to, and to and to critically analyze research? Yeah. Well, I can't emphasize enough that there's a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah, but selective reading. Yeah. So um, and becoming familiar with. Um, the databases that we now we now uh, use, yeah, you know, becoming conversant with how they work, yeah, so we can utilise them to the, to the most effective way to get into the evidence that we want to read, yeah. So uh, again, it's something that we often miss, yeah. So we'll go, we'll enter a database. It, it might be a generic all search engine like Summon, but it might also be a particular database like PubMed, yeah. And I I I know from experience and watching students many times in computer labs the temptation is to put your search terms into your boxes yeah and and go at it because you want you want to find the information yeah and and we all do that in google scholar yeah as well and <laughs> and yet in all of these databases yeah if you just click on the advanced function yeah you will find a whole range of parameters that you can put in there, which will really refine your search, yeah, and really will cut out an awful lot of extraneous material that you don't want. And again, it's something that we're all guilty of. We jump into putting our search terms in. We don't set parameters, yeah, and yet that is what we're, we're really how we should be using the databases. That's the first thing about, yeah. The next thing really is as well is about that that seeking clarification yeah and there's no i mean yes we can get that from our text and our websites and everything else but there's no better clarification than peer discussion yeah it's how academia works yeah and it's also how evidence-based practice works really so without the critical discussion with your peers about what you're reading yeah it, you, you your knowledge will only advance within the confines of your head yeah and of course I've yet to come across in healthcare a single autonomous practitioner. We all work in teams, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. In one way, shape, or form. So, and even your um, first responder, yeah, will ultimately be working as part of a team. Yeah. So, um, 
in and why would it be any different in research and reading research yeah so you know because uh, if we if if that's the we, it's called synergy yeah so it's about synergistic response so even first responders they work in synergy yeah so and it works for research as well if you work in synergy if you engage in critical discussion with your peers and your knowledgeable experts like your lecturers or whoever it is that you're working with yeah then you'll get a synergistic response yeah you'll get more output from what you input this is the true magic of of the nhs i promise i'm going to bring this back on topic warren yeah. um, is that you can have up to 200 300 practitioners clinicians professionals all working together for the benefit of one patient at that time that will mm. have never met each other never known each other but that's what we're all there to do and you're absolutely right to get that synergistic output um, so the output being greater than the sum of all the individual inputs, that's what truly makes the NHS special. And from a practical perspective for research, um, I've got a great example of that. So I've got a gifted group of student paramedics at the moment and they approached a research module and they were absolutely petrified. They absolutely won't mind me share with you this. Um, we've gone through the module. They're still very apprehensive. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been hosting peer discussion groups. I said, listen, guys, just read the paper, come back and let's just have a chat about it. And my gosh, the discussion, the quality of that discussion, the academic quality of that discussion, mm -hmm. just through talking to each other, picking up on points that not everybody had noticed on everybody this is something else i noticed in the nhs everybody's got an opinion everybody wants to contribute which is fantastic but absolutely the quality of that discussion was phenomenal and that helps everybody to learn yeah. so i completely yeah. agree with that point the other point again i completely agree on is the advanced function database uh, advanced function on the search in databases because and, and i do this you think to yourself, right, I'm going to look at this topic and I'm going to think about my phrases and then you'll put the phrases in straight away. Mm. I will guarantee if people were to spend five more minutes thinking about the search terms mm. to put into that advanced function on the database, you're going to get a greater quality and refinement of yeah. results back. Easy. You want to look at, for example, ambulances, paramedics, technicians, EMTs, pre-hospital care professionals, practitioners. But by refining it down and to say no i'm interested in uk paramedics it will it will make that that data out so much of a better quality and it saves you so much time yeah absolutely yeah good warren thank you so much for joining us today it's certainly been so useful for me i can imagine it's going to be absolutely valuable to to our to our students our current and our forthcoming students so so yeah thank you so much yeah. and um, and i look no forward problem. to talking to you again soon yeah no problem it's been a pleasure yeah great take care bye So a fascinating insight there into a cohort study methodology and palliative care in paramedic practice from a wonderful source. Our sincere thanks to Dr Gillibrand for taking the time to speak to us today and sharing his insight. Join us again in the next few weeks for further episodes where we will discuss IV versus oral paracetamol, a case control study, and when resuscitation doesn't work, a qualitative study from the BPJ and the International Emergency Nursing Journal, respectively. If you like the podcast, please do let us know by liking, commenting and subscribing. And please do get in contact using Twitter, where I can be found at Fletcher5555. 
Thanks once again to Dr. Gillibrand and on behalf of the paramedic team at the University of Huddersfield School of Human and Health Sciences, I look forward to catching up with you all soon.